think we all know the pedigree of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology when it comes to bird resources, and we at the ABA are excited to partner with the Cornell Lab of O to offer an amazing deal exclusive to ABA members. ABA members can now get a 15% discount to any new subscription to Cornell's amazing new Birds of the World resource that is applicable for three years. Birds of the World is a powerful resource that brings deep scholarly content from four celebrated works of ornithology into a single platform where birders can answer all their life history questions for every species of bird they could want. It is extraordinary. You can get more information at birdsoftheworld.org. Hello, and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. It is the end of the month. If you are a regular listener, you know what that means this month in birding. But first, a moment for some ABA housekeeping. We will be in Nashville on December 10th to reveal the ABA's 2023 Bird of the Year. I will be there. 2023 Bird of the Year artist Liz Clayton Fuller will be there. A few other ABA folks will be there as well. Tickets are available now. It should be a fun time. Those are at aba.org slash B-O-T-Y. Also, and I know this is a little annoying, but we're coming to the end of the year. It is time for our annual appeal. Think of us as the NPR of birding. If you have a few dollars that you are willing to toss our way in appreciation of what we do here, we would be very thankful. You can do that at aba.org slash appeal, and I apologize in advance for the regular reminder of that through the end of the year. And third, ABA membership makes a great holiday gift for the bird lover in your life. Do consider it. You can get information at aba.org slash join. All right. All that out of the way, let's get to the good stuff. It is This Month in Birding with Mo Dyke, Greg Nice, and Miko Jimenez. We talk eBird status, rediscoveries, and zodiac birds, and more. All that after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the third week of November 2022. Two different fan-tailed warblers in Arizona this past week are certainly the highlight of the period. One comes from Maricopa County and the other a day later in Pima. This large and striking species of northwest Mexico is partly migratory, with a dozen or so records in the ABA area, mostly from Arizona, but also from New Mexico and West Texas. There seems to be more of them in recent years, a pattern that matches that of a number of northern Mexico species. A few firsts of note for the period, a pink-footed goose in Shelby County, Kentucky is certainly a surprise. Records of this Eurasian waterfowl species have exploded in recent years, notably in conjunction with breeding populations in Northern Europe. They are regular these days in the Maritimes and New England and have been recorded south to Virginia. But records away from the East Coast have always been looked at critically, but with a recent record from as far away as Colorado, perhaps they shouldn't be anymore. A lesser nighthawk on Kiowa Island in Charleston, South Carolina is a first for that state and the second for the Carolinas, though that first one was a dead bird that currently resides in the North Carolina State Museum. And the latest notable tropical kingbird record comes from Rockingham County, New Hampshire, where it is a state first. It has been a very very good year for tropical kingbirds in the Northeast. Those are the highlights of the week, but for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook. Happy American Thanksgiving to all who are celebrating today. In honor of our one and only bird-centered holiday, I am excited to convene a This Month in Birding panel that is equal parts sweet and savory and a discussion that offers plenty of gravy and only a little stuff. What a group. What a group we have today. Let's get to it. 
Um, I can't believe you just did that. And yeah, that Mo just adds, who is savory? I don't know. We're all savory. All savory. And maybe a little sweet. Inside of us, there are two flavors. One savory. Anyway, though her uh, bird podcast is on hiatus, her mind never strays far from birds. From the Bird Shirt podcast, the one uh, this month in birding panelist who has visited me here in Greensboro, North Carolina. It is our friend, Mo Stike. Hello, Mo. Hello. Thanks again for having me. Next up, my colleague from the ABA who stepped in last minute, for which I am extremely grateful. He is the mastermind behind ABA community and all the web whatnots at the American Birding Association. It's Greg Neese. Hello, Greg. Howdy ho. Pleasure to be here. A researcher in aeroecology, among other things, currently based in Colorado. Welcome back, Miko Jimenez. Hi, Miko. What's up, Nate? Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Um, lots going on right now. It is a, it is a holiday and though we're recording early, um, we're heading into the holiday season, which is traditionally one of the most stressful times of year for a lot of people. So it's interesting that last month a study came out in the journal Scientific Reports about the mental health benefits of birding. Uh, and the study is sort of notable because while there's a, a lot of research into the mental health benefits of, of nature in general, and there's not a lot about birding specifically, so I won't go into too much detail here. Um, there's an app where participants from Europe, US, China, and Australia recorded how they were feeling when they could see or hear birds. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the big takeaway uh, is that people describe their reaction to birdsong as joyful. So my question to you to open up this discussion is, do you recognize those effects in yourself when you're birding? I don't know if I recognize them all the time when I'm birding, but I find that I recognize them when I'm not actively birding. Yeah. Like yeah. if I'm having if I'm having like a moment, but I'm outside and like I hear something. Like, like if I hear a bird call, it's like comforting in a way. Yeah. Or it's like enough of a distraction to like quickly ID something that like maybe it takes my brain away from whatever was troubling me like at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, I see that. Yeah. Because sometimes when I'm birding, too. I'm getting more frustrated that I can only hear <laughs> the same birds. <Yeah>. Right. <laughs> and I'm not hearing anything different or unique. <laughs> you're, you're right that it is a distraction. You know, it is an opportunity for your mind to kind of let those kind of let the things that have been bothering you kind of slip away and kind of get in the not to get too zen on it but kind of get in the in this kind of stream of consciousness where your your mind is your mind isn't you know perseverating on one thing that might be bothering you and sort of open to everything around you i find i get a lot of my best ideas for podcasts or questions or conversations about birds while i'm out in the field and uh i want i, I think that might be the sort of the same, the same thing going on no, I feel the exact same way. Like, I feel like I notice it more in when it's absent in my life. So like, yeah, if I'm really stressed, like if it, that's when it comes, that's when I notice like the lack of effect, I guess. But then I mm -hmm. also feel like there is to what you just said, Nate, like, there's almost like a part of my creative process, uh, process, or just like thinking process where like, you know, if I'm really struggling with something, I'll like, or, you know, I'll like take a break from looking at my computer and like go birding. And oftentimes mm -hmm. it's like when I figure things out and I don't know yeah. how, oh, for sure. or how that works, but it just, it does. Yeah. I, I know it's like a way to just kind of not focus your like unfocus in a productive way, I guess. I kind of, I kind of disagree. I think it, oh, it, it switches. It. I think it switches focus mm -hmm. into yeah. a connection into something that not everybody else is connected to. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, you're, you're, you're walking down the street, you know, a busy street or whatever, and you hear a bird call, um, mm. especially if it's, you know, like um, a, a kinglet or something in a tree overhead as you're walking down a city block. It's like you're in a different space 
all of a sudden. Yeah. Yeah. You're in a much bigger world and you're in a different place right there. And it, I mean, it always makes me feel good that a, I know what that is mm -hmm. and B, I know that it's there and it just kind of takes your mind into a completely different thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, no, I, I see that. And you like, I think there is something also like when you're out birding and you are like recognizing birds by, um, sight and sound, um, there's something about having those kind of little, little wins, I guess. Mm -hmm. Like you feel, you feel like you are accomplishing something. You feel as though you're, you're skilled, you're good at something. And sometimes when people get frustrated or, or down on themselves, a lot of it is like, you know, imposter syndrome. I can't do this. I won't do this. Like, you know, all these sort of thoughts, intrusive thoughts that get into your head. And birding is, is a way to kind of have these little successes over the course of a day that make you feel like you're, uh, you're productive, I guess. That's a good point. Absolutely. 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 Anyway, um, it doesn't surprise me at all that, um, that birding has mental health benefits. I think that's been something that a lot of people have recognized and started to write and think about. And uh, that's, it's good to see. We, I mean, we definitely need more birders in a stressful well, world. I guess. And, and, and I think it also challenges your brain in a way that, I mean, uh, people, I mean, it's, it's easy to become just numb yeah, <laughs> for sure. Because right now. I mean, it's yeah. easy to just be just like, go through, plod your way through your work and whatever else it is you're working on, you know, whatever else you're doing and birding challenges your mind and, and, and just like, kind of make it me anyways it kind of just makes me wake up and and um feel better about whatever I mean, whatever's going on yeah yeah i sure. don't think it's a coincidence that like there's this huge increase in birders throughout the pandemic right or is i guess <laughs> yeah, like no um that kind of makes a you know there were all those like reports of that and articles about that and that makes so much sense to me even just anecdotally hearing like i feel like friends would text me more about birds and like they were just noticing those kinds of things so yeah, th this makes a lot of sense while, while you're reading this kind of a, kind of a study. We're coming up on a busy birding time. Christmas bird counts are, are coming up. Lots of people going to be out birding. No better time to uh, to do it. Maybe maybe that's why birders are so happy during the holidays. I guess one other thing I want to note on this is like there is this budding literature, as you noted, Nate, of just like the mental health benefits of green space uh, broadly, but here birds specifically. Um, and I think that connection between you know mental health and nature um brings up this kind of equity issue right because we know mm -hmm. that green spaces and uh you know biodiversity is not really equitably distributed and yeah. that's how uh, a lot of cities are set up not kind of to have those things equitably distributed so at that level now that we've made that connection and it seems like that connection is pretty clear it becomes an equity issue and i yeah. I just think that's like an important point. Every time I read one of these papers that makes this point, I just that's where my brain jumps as an urban ecologist. Yeah, everyone needs access to green space. Everyone needs access to trees. A little bit of water is nice too. <laughs> I mean, granted, we 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 birders do bird at some pretty un, unusual places. Uh, you know, no one's going to be writing about the the scenic quality of landfills and water treatment facilities. Um, but the regular birding, there's a reason we all have our our parks, our our local patches, the things that we kind of hold dear and we go back to time and time again and why those are frequently not uh, landfills. Unless you are a landfill bird, more power to you. But that's I could also see somebody who only listens to pigeons and seagulls all day be like, this study is <laughs> this, full of crap. This <laughs> is totally not. <laughs> yeah. This is not accurate. <laughs> so yeah, more points the for green The incessant cheap, cheap, cheap of house sparrows. Yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> I mean, even I'm kind of like, seriously, guys? Uh, it's a little bit. 
I mean, I obviously didn't see, I, I um, came in here last minute and didn't see the study, but is it specifically about bird noises that make people feel better or just being out birding? Uh, so it's a little bit of both. Um, so people were recording um, their feelings when they encountered nature, when they encountered, um, you know, just when they were out. And, um, you know, bird song is one of the most obvious signs of bird presence to people sure. who are, you know, n- non-birders. And so I think that was sort of why it kind of got the headline. But the whole study is takes into account like seeing and hearing birds, like noting birds or being in the presence of birds. Yeah, because I mean, you know, it's I, I think of birding as if you're if you're outside and you're hearing, I mean, bird song, especially in the in the spring and summer, it's beautiful. And then, you know, you go to the woods and the wood thrushes or whatever your local thrush is, robins are singing. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. But then birding, which I look at the title of the of the paper and it's like, OK, that's that's a different thing from standing in the woods and listening to mm. the beautiful bird mm-hmm. song. Mm-hmm. That's trying to understand what is making that noise and maybe even trying to see it. And that's like where your brain goes to a different place. Yeah. I also wonder now I'm like super curious. I don't know if you guys listen to like white noise or ocean sound or whatever when you fall asleep. I wonder if birders find bird call sounds relaxing when they're trying to sleep or if it's one of those things. Oh, I don't. I can't do that. Like I'm I'm trying to identify it. Exactly. Right. Like it's so stress inducing. It's like maybe this is relaxing for other people, but this is not relaxing. (laughs) There's no such thing as a pastoral bird sound. Uh, And and especially so many of those, so many of those like, you know, um, I forget what their ambiance record. Yeah, you yeah. know that you can get um you know it's like birds of eastern north america ambi- you know, it's like no there's definitely some yeah. european or something in there you guys messed it up and we know it <laughs> exactly yeah, working in they there just couldn't resist it's also oh. why so many movies are ruined for birders too right when no the well, wrong that's, song that's calls a whole <laughs> other conversation yeah yeah, yeah. that's a whole another <laughs> yep I don't know if any of you uh, watch Atlanta, but this last season had like a lot of bird soundscapes. There's a lot of like nature episodes or like episodes uh-huh. where they were out in you know in the woods and stuff. And yeah, it was distracting. Like it was. It wasn't birds of the southeast United States. Some of uh, yeah, I, you, some of them. <laughs> like I'll it was. It, it felt like like a general like North America smattering type of thing. <laughs> yeah, California quail and whatnot. Yeah, that one's in all of them. <laughs> All right, so it was a pretty big month for community or citizen science. Um, eBird released their updated stats and trends maps. Uh, these are maps that use eBird data to show trends of species abundance over the past 15 years at various stages of the full annual cycle for 586 species at a, like a remarkably high resolution. Um, and so, you know, taking a look the, at the maps, they're pretty sobering. There's a lot of declines in there, like some species of interest for me here in Colorado. Uh, both mountain bluebirds and tree swallows are declining basically across their entire range. Um, stellar jays are really interesting because they're declining on the interior of the country and then increasing on the western coast. Um, but then also some positives in there, like there's a ton of increases in waterfowl um, where we've put a lot of our conservation efforts. So, you know, seeing that conservation kind of pay off is a good thing. A mix of different stuff. But if you haven't checked them out yet, you really should. Those maps are amazing, albeit a little bit sobering. Um, but then also this month, a PLOS One paper came out, which was led by Aaron Grade at Clark University. Um, and this paper basically looked at the distribution of eBird checklists from 2006 to 2016 in Boston and Phoenix relative to census tracts, so socioeconomics and um, 
I guess, the distribution of eBird uh, checklists. And essentially what they found is that income and race are really strong predictors of what areas are being sampled by eBird. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, white areas are high income or with a high income were far more likely to be sampled. And this is even after controlling for things like track size or the availability of green space. Um, and so this is maybe not that surprising that authors even note that eBird registr- registrants are overwhelmingly white at almost 94%. Um, and But it really just highlights the sampling bias and highlights kind of the non-representativeness of eBird data and maybe just highlight some of the limitations of using it to look at things like socioeconomics and bird diversity. Um, and so I guess I just want to be really clear here because I don't want this to get twisted. I'm not discounting the stats and trends or calling their validity into question. I'm actually a huge fan of those maps and I think they're awesome. Mm-hmm. But I think the point that I'm trying to make is a little bit broader here is, you know, as we see this rise of big data in the ornithological community, we need to be really cautious about the limitations of the data set, right? There's no such thing as a Swiss army data set. Every data set's going to come with some bias. Um, and I think, you know, some data sets are going to be good for answering some questions and not others. Um, and that was kind of on full display with eBird this this past month, I think. So there's a couple of thoughts. Um, one, I think it's um, fascinating that the eBird status and trends are as good as they are, given these limitations. Totally. And two, um, yeah, obviously it shows the need that, to, to encourage more people to get into birding from from different backgrounds, from different communities. We've, we've talked about this in the podcast before. Conservation cannot be siloed. Like, it needs to be everybody's problem. We need to think about it as everybody's, everybody mm-hmm. as a, a stakeholder in this. And that means that we need to constantly be, be trying to bring this sort of stuff into the, into the different communities that have not traditionally been in the birding community. And the more we do that, the better it's going to be for the birds we love, the community that we are in. Like, there's no negatives to making sure that we're that this outreach is a big part of our priorities. And um, yeah, I, I look forward to seeing what we what we take from this. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe to piggyback off that, like, is it that they're not birding or is it that they don't know what tools are available to them? Like, because I remember when I first started mm-hmm. birding, I mean, I just like had some binoculars and walked around and like looked at stuff. But it wasn't until I joined a birding group that I even learned about eBird. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like sometimes it's just a matter of knowing that the tools are there. Um, and even, you know, if people contact me and they're like, oh, I want to get into birding, like, where should I start? I'm like, download Merlin Bird ID, yeah, download exactly. eBird and yeah. like start to make that like a part of your experience, I guess. Um, it's a weird it's a weird hobby because you don't need technology to start doing it. However, it is beneficial for the whole community when people do start using the technology. So that's kind of like a weird gap as well. Yeah, I was going to bring up Merlin too, because it does really feel like those sort of apps do have sort of the side effect of making access so much easier for people who have not traditionally been part of like sort of the bird club infrastructure. For Um, sure. You know, because there was a period it's earlier this year where Merlin was like, there was a ton of stuff about Merlin everywhere. You know, I, I don't know if that was the goal of Merlin uh, to start with. They, they were probably just, you know, using AI to do cool bird stuff. But man, yeah. that's, that's got to be one of the effects. Feels like it's going to be one of the effects. Yeah. I mean, I've, I, I know a, a few local friends of mine um, who were not birders who now are because of Merlin. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we can't forget the role of, of affordable digital photography in mm, all of this mm-hmm. and you know there's so many people out there now taking pictures 
of birds that there were not 15 years ago yeah and or more and so you know what we're learning is is exponentially growing because of that because the cameras just get cheaper and better every oh, they're on, year they're on your phone that everyone carries and, around you can well, yeah, I mean, take pretty I mean, good photos I mean, with that yeah i mean a camera with a 600 or an 800 millimeter lens you know like there's there's some of the, the point and shoot cameras that mm -hmm. are they're really good and they're affordable and people are dropping six eight hundred nine hundred bucks whatever mm -hmm. to go out and photograph birds and upload they want to share them where do you put them in ebert you know they mm -hmm. want to do that um but eBird still shows you where people go birding and what they're seeing. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. show you where the birds are. Yeah. And yep. even now, you know, there's whole entire areas with the Chicago Christmas count and every Chicago Christmas counts and everything. There's giant sections of the metro area that have almost no birding coverage whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then there's other places like Montrose Point, which I think has more checklists submitted than any other place in the world. <laughs> Maybe on par with Central Park. It's pretty close. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it's right. It's really lopsided. Yeah. And like to the status and trends credit, like the authors of that, of those maps note that, you know, there was some modeling that they did. Mm -hmm. There's some statistical tools that you can kind of get around some of that, right? Like you can account for things like, uh, like sampling bias to some degree, I think like the point of this paper was like if you're looking specifically at something like this relationship between socioeconomics and say bird rich species richness, like eBird's not really great. It, you know, there's some issues with using it for that type of analysis specifically. So it's just mm -hmm. it's more of this idea that there's like limitations for the type of things that you can do with it. Because I think it's really easy to look at those gas and trends maps and think like, oh, this is this is you know all we need. Like this is the ultimate data set for birds. Yeah. Um, but it's just like every, like I said, every data set has its bias and that that's a big one for eBird, I think. Yeah. I mean, it goes to show what we were talking about, you know, we've, you got to get more people into birding and, uh, yeah. from all sorts of different backgrounds and it'd be great to you know, and encourage people to bird their local patches too. Like a lot of it sometimes is even when you get folks into birding, um, they, I mean, they're still going a lot of times to the, the places that are the traditional birding hotspots. Like, like Greg says, you know, that. There, there are local spots, local parks, and, you know, obviously the need for more local parks. Um, there are places where birds are that maybe we don't see now. There's just a lot of, a lot of room to grow, I think. It's, it's funny you mentioned that, Nate, because I was thinking about when, when I was down in your neck of the woods mm -hmm. and I pulled up eBird and I was like, oh, like, what's there's in like there. the, like a 30 minute drive range that I could like go and look? And there was like, three eBird checklists submitted yeah. in the last like 30 well, days. Yeah, you were up in the in the northwest part of the county where not a lot of people bird. Like even when people get away from the city, they they bird over in the not that part of the not that part yeah, of the Yeah, and it's like wild. that's what's crazy to me. And I don't think that part places any bird le is like less bird rich than any other, you know, slightly rural part of the of the area, but yeah, no one birds there. I don't know yeah. Why. Yeah, and there's there's another um especially in in the the agricultural deserts um that, that I live in. Mm. Uh there's another um whole unexplored realm and that is um things like drainage ditches across private land. So mm -hmm. um a few times like in May, you know, been driving across just eight miles of of corn stubble. 
that's just been planted. And you come across a drainage ditch that has bushes and maybe a couple of trees, and you can only bird it from where you are on that road because it's private property on both sides. And for as far as you can see, that drainage ditch is just full of birds, but you can't make out what they are, you know, down. And then there's just miles and miles of that that nobody has access to. Yeah. And are are full of migrants and are full of breeding birds and things that we just have no idea what's out there. I guess uh, all those qualifications aside, did you all get a chance to check out the stats and trends maps? And were there any that kind of stood out to you? They're pretty cool. I mean, yeah, yeah I, I mentioned okay. some of the ones that I thought were great, but um, I, again, like I think I mentioned this in my my little spiel, but like the resolution is twenty seven kilometers by twenty seven kilometers, which is pretty remarkable. Yeah, I mean, I'm just looking at the one for. I just pulled up one just on random. The first one of the first ones there is snow goose, and um, the week to week changes on there are just so yeah. fascinating. And I, I remember when they first started doing those like blaze orange uh, GIFs maps that they came out with maybe 10 years now, 10 years ago now. And um, they've just come so far. Yeah. I, I, I'm a map geek in addition to being a bird geek. I've know I've <laughs> talked about that on this podcast and like the combination of these two things has been one of the most like joyful parts of being a birder in the last decade. <laughs> uh, there was a study that was published recently in global change biology that incorporated research coming out of the University of Colorado Boulder that talks about hybridizations appearing in areas where humans have altered the landscape in some way. Mm -hmm. So there were kind of two or three key takeaways out of uh, what I got out of this article, at least. The first is that a lot of people don't think that the, the two birds they studied, which were the black cap chickadee and the mountain chickadee, a lot of people don't think that they have a hybrid very often. However, like of the 400 plus species or 400 plus individuals that they studied, they said that almost every black cap chickadee ha was a hybrid in some capacity, which is kind of shocking. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, so it's one of those things like the, they didn't think that these birds really hy hybridized, but it turns out that they do. And it's quite frequent. Another thing that they pointed out is that, they haven't really concluded why chickadee hybrids are more common in places where humans have altered the landscape. So I think that that's an important thing to know is even though they proved that this happens, they can't really, they don't really have a hypothesis as to why. Like, is it because of lack of habitat? Is it because mm -hmm. these birds are forced to come into contact with each other more frequently? But they did find that when humans alter the landscape, there is a likelier chance that hybrids will occur. Hmm. So they're kind of like in some way breaking down those evolutionary barriers that mm -hmm. might have prevented yeah. them from becoming a hybrid species mm. in the in the past. And the last thing that I just think is worth noting is that they did use eBird data when trying to like identify where these hybrids were appearing. And I was just thinking, I was like, I am so bad about putting hybrids in eBird. Like, <laughs> oh, I, yeah, totally. I do not think <laughs> yeah. that I would be <laughs> this specific. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a chickadee. I don't even need my binoculars. So that's it's right. fine. It sounds like uh, a chickadee. Yeah. How many chickadees do you identify just by sound alone? Exactly. Don't really look yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that part of the study I found like a little questionable, but they did actually like tag specific individuals and look at them as well. So it was a, a compilation of research from different areas. But 
They said that this is the first time they've actually studied hybridization of a species and how that is affected by or at least correlates with human mm-hmm. activity. So that part is is exciting that this research is being done, even though we may not have the answers as to why it's occurring. What are the species pairs they're talking about there? Uh, the black cap chickadee and the mountain chickadee. So this was done in Colorado. Oh, the front range of Colorado is like yeah. one example they give. So they were they were doing like a couple sure. different areas where it was clear that like there were cities or land was cleared or or even something that like we planted trees here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It would be interesting to see if those if if those species pairs that are hybridizing more in human disturbed or human inhabited areas are birds that frequent bird feeders. Yeah. Because bird feeders bring Everybody the birds together. to the yard like All milkshake. The birds to the yard. Yeah. You know. <laughs> and that would that would cause a change in range. I mean, look at what we've seen with Rufus hummingbirds. Holy mackerel. Yeah, you know, we think a lot about black capped chickadee and Carolina chickadee chickadee hybrid zones. Um I, I, I guess I had not thought a lot about other black capped chickadee hybrid zones. I mean, black-hat chickadees, they got to be up there with, like, mallards and herring gulls as birds that mm. will mate with literally anything <laughs> that looks close. Uh, I, did not, I did not foresee that, but, uh, yeah, there we go. They did say that the mountain chickadee had fewer hybridization traits yeah. than the black cap. So, yeah, yeah the, clearly one, one species is handling much of the hybridization. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. The pioneers, yeah. As they, if you will. Mm-hmm. <laughs> An expansionary force. Yeah. <laughs> I I got to see Scott Taylor, who's the PI of this lab. Cause so Boulder's just down the street from me here uh, mm-hmm. in, in Fort Collins. And so he gave a talk up here and I'll just start by saying Scott is a fantastic present like presenter. And um, if you, if he happens to be coming and giving a research talk anywhere near you, you should go check it out uh, because he talks about a lot of these, these kind of avenues that we're going into, but like my reaction to it was kind of exactly what you all have been saying, where it's like, oh, man, I got to double check every black cap chickadee for mountain. Right? It's so easy to just like go on a walk and be like, all right, 15 of those. But uh, like yep. now I'm looking at like double checking all of those things. And on like the causal mechanism of this, it's it is notable, like on the front range specifically. Right. Like this should all be grassland. Right. This should be mm-hmm. more or less until you get into the foothills. But because we've basically set up cities here we've brought a lot of trees and so um we've really changed the landscape from that perspective and i'm you've got to imagine that plays some role in uh you oh, know, yeah in, in those two species kind of interacting yeah i mean that's sort of what was the theory of what caused the hybridization of effects of like uh, baltimore and bullock's oriole mm-hmm. and red shafted and yellow shafted flicker and uh lazuli and indigo bunting like basically these birds were separated by a big short grass prairie and they are aren't anymore yeah <laughs> and yeah, so yeah, they're yeah. coming into contact with each other and kind of closing these uh these barriers that had opened up over millennia yeah yeah i think that was an important point that the study was trying to make or at least that the co-authors emphasized is like we're not saying that this shift or this trend is good or that it's bad it's more about understanding the impact that this has mm-hmm. on a species. It's easy to point to habitat loss as constantly being like this terrible, terrible thing. Mm-hmm. And I will still openly do that. <laughs> yeah. But but it's more about like, okay, but also what impact is that having these chickadees are obviously becoming a little more resilient in some capacity in a way that yeah, maybe perhaps. wasn't as expected. It's yeah. not like they just got up and left. They just found a different way to live. Right. 
Right. I wonder if, um, you know, we're familiar with the Carolina black-capped chickadee. Here's mountain black-capped chickadee. I wonder if there are areas where um, black-capped chickadee interacts or, or overlaps with other species of chickadee of this sort of thing. Like, I don't know any whether, you know, boreal and black-capped chickadee hybridize or, or chestnut-backed and black-capped chickadee, even though they sort of overlap, or mountain and chestnut-backed chickadee for that, for that matter. That's like the uh, the great Maine state bird debate is. Oh, yeah. Which chickadee? <laughs> which chickadee <laughs> is it? It's like, well. Yeah. Yeah. People it's, have it's very strong opinions. But, I mean, you know, it, I, I've been birding a, a long time. And I mean, just sort of a, on a larger looking at it from a higher altitude. Um, just in my lifetime, birds have come to colonize cities. You know, birds that. Yeah. When I started birding in the 70s, the idea of seeing a red-bellied woodpecker or a white-breasted mm. nuthatch or something or a barred owl in Cooper Coop, Well, yeah, I was getting leading up. <laughs> okay, to that. I was uh, sorry. I, I didn't um, want no, to jump the okay, gun. <laughs> but but inside the metro part of Chicago was just a very, very difficult bird. Now, you know, those birds are all over the place. Cooper's hawk is, I mean, yeah. it's it's amazing what's happened with Cooper's hawks and now pileated woodpeckers. You know, there's there's pileated woodpeckers half a mile from my house here. Which, you know, if you told me that 20 years ago, I'd think, no, yeah. no way. Yeah, and the other direction, too, you know, things like uh, Buick's wren, which uh, in the east, at least, was, you know, a very common bird. And in the last 40, 50 years has pretty much been extirpated east of the Appalachians. Um, and, and there's and there's plenty of space for them. Like, there's, like, if you look around, it looks like there's plenty of brushy habitat and fields well, and stuff that they like, but okay, apparently no, not okay. the right kind. Are we well, going to talk exactly. about some Buick's wrens? I'm going to talk about Buick's wrens for just <laughs> yeah, a second right. because that is in 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 Forgottonia, Illinois. Um, you know, it's, Buick's wrens still hang on. Yeah, but it's really hard to try to find them because they like to nest in abandoned cars and barbecue grills and outside somebody's home who you cannot stop and look at this person's yard to see yeah. if there's Buick's wrens there, even though you know they sing loudly. It's like no, you're not going. You're not going to go look for birds right there. Yeah, and the, you know, the places, the, the places where they have been found, have been found inside like a state park, yeah, in the the equipment dump area. And when they yeah. cleaned up the equipment dump, dump, the the wrens were gone. There were like mm -hmm. these old tractors and sheds and all this junk. And as soon as they cleaned up the junk, the Buick's wrens were out of there and haven't you, been seen. You blame since. the recycling industry. I. <laughs> I just, it's, it's like the Buick's wrens, at least the Eastern ones, they have this love of, of just junk, junk. <laughs> <laughs> That's where you find more them junk. is like, need you more find junk. them in junk piles. And they go, excuse me, I'm going to go dump a car exactly. uh, in some random field and if see what a, happens in 25 years. If you got a, if you got an old car with a tree growing out the windshield, yeah. you're going to have Buick's oh, wrens in you. They don't make cars like that anymore. Too much plastic. <laughs> I yeah. I do think this is. This is like the exciting thing about urban ecology or just more generally thinking about cities as ecosystems is mm -hmm. like every city is an ongoing experiment, right? Like, and there's all <laughs> yeah, these aspects that we can look yeah. at. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And to most point, it's like, it's, yeah, good and bad. And for, there are winners and losers, but it just kind of is. And it's, there's all these aspects. Like I hadn't mm -hmm. really thought about the effect of things like urbanization on hybridization and, and you know, these two species before, but that's such a cool aspect to look we at. Are. Yeah. Yeah. So there's this uh, article out today 
uh, in Audubon. As of the morning we record. Yeah, it came out Yeah, as of this morning. That's right. Um, Jason Bersma, is it Jason? Jordan, sorry. Jordan Bersma, um, who I believe is, his name sounds really familiar. He may be one of the guys that's behind all that incredible um, Bird of Paradise footage, but I may be getting that wrong. Um, But using camera traps, they rediscovered Black Nate Pheasant Pigeon, which has not been seen, documented in any way since it was first described in 1882. And it was found off, uh, it was found on Ferguson Island, which is uh, up by, uh, the, the up uh, the, off the northeast coast of Papua New Guinea, where the, sort of in the area where the uh, Wilson's Bird of Paradise is found. Mm-hmm. They had their camera traps out and got lucky and rediscovered yeah. this bird. And, um, you know, they are out there and it's, I'm going to go there. You know, ivory-billed woodpecker, if there were ivory-billed woodpeckers around, camera traps and a little bit of, and a little bit of work would have done it by now. Huh? And finding mm-hmm. a bird like this that hasn't been seen since 1882 or 1892, mm-hmm. 1882. I mean, that's, that's just, it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. And, and it's part of this, this part of this, um, bird life, American bird conservancy collaboration called the search for lost birds, which is mm-hmm. like an Indiana Jones ornithology stuff that I absolutely love. Yeah. I mean, they did the thing. They've got Intel from the indigenous community. Uh, they figured out a good spot to put their camera trap, uh, and they <gasps> did it and it didn't take, all that long i'm just saying well no i have that question too like how long did it take when they set up these camera traps because i i do i see your point greg i also wonder if some this is also a type of thing where someone might look at this and be like see like they could still yeah. be out there it's you true. know it you could read it the other way okay, okay so yeah it took them a month. wow yeah all right well that, that's uh, not a long time not um, at all yeah, anyway, uh, it's a cool-looking bird. It's like a big chicken-looking pheasant. No, it's a big chicken-looking pheasant pigeon. Pheasant pigeon, yeah, <laughs> big chicken-looking pigeon. Um, yeah, you know, bloodthirsty mosquitoes, leeches. I mean, this is, by all accounts, a very difficult place to get to. I don't know what other birds they have on this list. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a look. look. It's 150 um, species. Even if they're right in front of you, that, that, th- those pheasant pigeons are really hard to see. I'm... When I worked at Lincoln Park Zoo as their staff photographer, we had mm-hmm. uh, the roof, rufus-naped pheasant pigeon, which is also very rare. Um, and, you know, they were in an aviary with me, and I knew where they were. And the pictures I've gotten are are fine, but it's really hard work, even when they're right in front of you in an aviary. They just, they like it in the dark, mm-hmm. dark mm-hmm. places. Yeah, classic, uh, classic rainforest pheasant pigeon behavior. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, so I pulled up some more information about this this quest for lost birds effort, and uh, they've had some they found some pretty cool stuff um, over the last few years. They've got uh, Peldsland's toady tyrant, which hadn't been seen since 1831. Uh, in 1992, uh, you know, blue eyed ground dove in Brazil uh, hadn't mm-hmm. been seen since 19, 1941. Uh, Cebu flowerpecker, I remember when they found that one not all that long ago. And mm-hmm. there are still some some ones out there. Apparently, the most outstanding one is a turquoise-throated puffleg, a hummingbird in Ecuador that has not been confirmed since 1850. There, there was a debated sighting uh, in 1976. 
But a lot of these birds are really cryptic. They're in, like they're kind of tough to find. They're definitely in difficult places. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing stuff. These efforts are are remarkable, and uh, kudos to them for finding that bird. Absolutely. Um, and that yeah, like you said, that kind of that kind of exploration um, is just it, it's it's so exciting. It's just so exciting to see happen. Yeah, it sounds like a sweet gig. I mean, yeah, so right? are they just tra- like <laughs> well, who's funding this? Who's can I, I, how do I get in on this? ABC, yeah, yeah. Having, so. having lived having lived in tents in the Western Amazon uh, lowland uh, sure. rainforest for for months at a time, it's not quite as sweet as you might think. It is. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's sweet fun. when you find the bird. That's it's the really sweet, sweet when you're back. <laughs> yeah, right. You're telling the stories there. or with a group when of friends around a beer. Yeah, <laughs> that's fair. I came across this story in Birds and Blooms uh, at the end of last month. I almost did it for the last month's this month in birding, but this month in birding. So, but I saved it. The the, the name of the the article is um, "Does Your Birth Month Bird Match Your Personality?" And so I sent it to you all to see if your birth month bird matches your personality. Just seems to me, this seems to me to be some sort of kind of listicle article the birds chosen are kind of random and very broad for instance my birth month bird it's a really hard thing to say actually um is owl and you know there's something like a hundred and odd species of owls in the world and i you know, like am, am i a, am i a pell's fishing owl or am i a long-eared owl or am i a, a ferruginous pygmy owl there's like no way to know i feel like all those birds have different vibes and i, I wouldn't be able to choose just one but clearly you embody all of them all the owls all at once yeah i'm the the the, the platonic ideal of an owl um yes. <laughs> so I, i'm asking you folks panel um does your birth month bird match your personality do we want to go in chronological order i was gonna say sure. I'm March. Oh, I'm, i was january which was owl I'm so May. i guess i went i'm april okay perfect right. yeah yeah March, April, May. Wow, that's yeah, kind of wow, boring, that. but also kind of nice for the purpose <laughs> of the podcast. Uh, yeah, so the March birth month bird, which is a tongue twister, right, Nate? Um, yeah. Is the robin. So I'm assuming American robin here because... That's what the picture is. The picture. The, we're going off the picture. Maybe we just go off the picture. Yeah. Make it a little easier. Um, you know, I think I probably could be a robin. Like, I'm pretty loud. Uh, I feel like I have seasonal affect disorder, so you don't really see me in the winter. Like I'm there, but like I'm hard to find. The big deal when Mo returns in the spring. Yeah. Yeah. Big deal when I come back in the spring. (laughs) If I have too many fermented berries, I get a little woozy. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, historically I am an early bird. Like if I'm not pregnant, which I am right now, I do get up pretty early. So eh, I could see it. But I also, as we were talking about um, before we started recording, like I'm pretty into the astrology too. So I could probably mm-hmm. deduce anything from any personality quiz. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an April birthday. Actually, fun fact I share a birthday with Mandy Moore. Oh, nice. Um, well, look so that is a fun fact. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, so that's uh, the bird of that month is canary. Um, and honestly, this is maybe just my own ignorance, but I didn't know that much about canaries other than that they're like, finches that are often kept as pets yeah but yeah so i looked them up more and realized i did not realize how diverse um there's a lot of canaries there's a ton yeah. of canaries across africa yeah. you know a lot of them are colorful and loud singers 
um, as, as a choir boy who uh, is a fairly flashy <laughs> dresser, I would I guess I identify with that. All right. Um, in per- in particular, I really like the Cape Canary in Southern Africa. Um, uh-huh. That's a good one to look at. I just think they're. I feel like I connect with that vibe. And then, lastly, I want to say, did you know that a notable canary uh, is Big Bird? Did you know that Big Bird's a canary? Suppose I mean canary wow. in quotes here. When I need to see some uh, mitochondrial DNA on that taxonomic decision. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you could thank Wikipedia for that fun fact. But um, <laughs> I just Senator famous canaries. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, there's canaries. the coal mine one, and then there's Big Bird. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know what's weird though? It's like I that is shocking. But it's also like, what else could Big Bird be? Yeah, being as yellow as he emu. is, I guess. Uh, yeah. He's not emu. a prothonotary warbler either. But <laughs> no, definitely, he's not living in cavity. Uh, my birthday is May 10th, and uh, I share my birthday with Warren Zevon. And oh, man, um, aren't we all celebrity adjacent here? <laughs> my uh, my my bird apparently is nightingale, which yeah. is wrong on every possible <laughs> level that you could try Finally. to. <laughs> I am. I do note that it's three consecutive months of birds that kind of are singers, and they describe them all as kind of sweet singing birds. Um, I don't know and if that's a, a criticism of the of the. Know, the choices for each well month, what's the but. november bird so say maybe it's a springtime thing yeah like we are rooster november is rooster yeah oh my okay i've just i feel I'm, like if you're gonna do that you should just make it turkey and just like go all the way out right exactly uh, yeah as long as, all right as long as we're there what's december raven which is a cool one okay that's that's a good that's, one that's yeah. a good one that's a good surprise it's not october I think they started there and worked backwards. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Raven's great. Yeah, exactly. And then by the time they got to November, like, we're out of birds. We got to choose a chicken. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As did at least two states when choosing their state birds. Talk about a cop out. I am yeah. sort of interested in this idea of, um, I, don't, I don't put too much stock into it, but, you know, I feel like there's room for a birdie zodiac. We could come up with, birds that match whatever the personality traits that are associated with with um whatever zodiac thing i, I don't know what they are i'm a um i'm a capricorn what is a capricorn what is the trait of a capricorn mo you said that you know i'll take you to a google search yeah i don't i'm not very great with like other people's zodiacs because i'm a pisces <laughs> so obviously i'm really obviously, interested yeah, in my own traits sounds, sounds personally <laughs> Yeah. Uh, overachievers persistent practical and sensitive well, I, I mean i guess that well, I mean, you know, Taurus, Taurus is bullheaded, slow, and obstinate. And are you describing yourself, Greg? I, uh, you know, <laughs> it, it kind of fits. I don't know what kind of a bird you'd choose for that. What's a slow-headed, obstinate bird? Do birds show obstinacy? I don't know if they do. <laughs> I was thinking about mine a little bit, and like, I mean, Pisces water sign. So I was like, maybe something like people, other Pisces are going to be like yelling at me probably. But I was like, maybe the Canada goose is a good example because <laughs> we're pretty emotional. Like but, we mate yeah. for life. <laughs> yeah. But we also, we get aggressive too. Well, I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, I, okay. I, Taurus, but Taurus is also, Taurus is also gentle and, and loving. And so, you know, you could say like morning dove, where just, okay. they're not, they're never going to leave the feeder. They're going to sit right in the middle of the damn thing. Yeah. And, you know, but they're, they're gentle and nice and they're not going to hurt anybody. Yeah. I think, you know, like Capricorn signs, hardworking, practical, ambitious. That feels like a woodpecker to me. Oh yeah. I can see that. I can yeah. See that. yeah. Or sapsucker. 
you know, constantly drilling those perfect lines on a cedar tree. Yeah, just I could see that day after day after day. Feels like podcasting. Okay, actually. so it sounds like we've just won up the article. <laughs> yeah, we got to get to work. A, a minimal of thought. We, we actually just, just wrote our own article. That's what I exactly. That's what I just said. Yeah. What about you? I think what, that this what? could be accurately crowdsourced, though. I feel like yeah, this is no a, a Twitter thread no waiting to happen. Oh, that's a good and, point. Yeah, and then cool. the ABA yeah. can turn it into their 2023 zodiac calendar <laughs> and start selling it. Well, you know, oh, you know, the the Chinese zodiac has the the different animals for every year. That's essentially what we do with our bird of the year, anyway. It's there true. you go. Burrowing Take owl. Take it one more notch. People born in the year of a burrowing owl are overcaffeinated, look fluffy. <laughs> I don't know what are the traits of a burrowing owl. <laughs> Hiding from their problems. Yeah, yeah. Peering. <laughs> Sheltering in place, yeah. The, yeah, sheltering in place. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll wrap it up for this month. Um, happy Thanksgiving to those of you who are celebrating uh, in the United States. Uh, thank you so much to Greg, Mo, and Miko for joining me. Greg, especially for popping in at the very last notice and stepping in uh, and doing a beautiful job. Uh, Always frankly. my pleasure. Yeah, I'll, you'll be able to find all the stuff that these amazing people are doing. I'll put it in the show notes. Please check them out. Um, otherwise, thanks so much. Happy Thanksgiving. Uh, hope you have a great holiday season, and we'll uh, I'll see all three of you down the road. Sounds, Sounds good. good. Thanks, Nate. Bye. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support it by supporting the ABA with your memberships. Uh, you already know about all the benefits, but you get magazines, you get discounts to our many partners and opportunities to travel with us, which, are, which is a lot of fun. But also, you get the feeling that you're contributing to a bigger and better birding community here in the U.S., Canada, and beyond. You can get more information about becoming a member of the ABA at aba.org slash join. Special shout outs this week to Kevin Hayes of Fairborn, Georgia, John Peckham of Williston, Vermont, Bradley Wilkinson of Durham, North Carolina, and Torgel Zethson and family of Alameda, California, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted specifically this podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you so much for joining the ABA. Welcome. Executive director of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Nikki Belmonte, who is inscrutable when she doesn't vocalize, which clearly makes her a fly guitarist. Technical production is by John Lowry, whose keen eye towards danger and mixed company makes him, without doubt, a chicken pie CCCCs. Additional help with social media comes from George Munoz, who is outgoing. He's curious. He's bold. He's clearly a Sagittarius. You can find us online at aba.org and on social media most everywhere as American Birding Association. On Twitter, for now, we are at ABA. Though you can't always see me, I do have a, a loud voice, which I suppose makes me a Capricorn bunting. Questions, comments, can come to podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, everybody, and we'll catch you next week. <laughs>